I did actually lay my hand heavily on a brother earlier on. I tried to be very literal. They say lay hands suddenly on no man, so I actually laid my hand on Matt this morning, or on uh, Luke this morning. Well, good morning, and once again, welcome to our Family Bible Hour. As always, it's a great privilege to meet with the saints here at Faith and to fellowship together. We are a very tiny assembly, but a very close-knit one. And when any of our members are not here, we greatly miss their presence. It's such a relief to see Chris, Chi, and Nancy here back again with us this morning. So, uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, we all missed you very much. Welcome back. Last week, we began with the book of Exodus and covered the first chapter of that book quite thoroughly. I also handed out three handouts concerning the genealogy of Jacob's family in particular, uh, that lineage uh, especially that concerns us with Moses and Aaron. And so if you didn't receive any of those handouts, please let me know and I'll give them to you later on. But uh, would you please carry these with you at all times, fold them in half, keep them in your Bible, because we're going to be mentioning all sorts of names and it doesn't get a little complicated later on. Again, uh, thank you, Luke, for reading this passage for us earlier on. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, and this, of course, will be our main text for this morning, Exodus 2, verses 1, is it 25 or 26, uh, 1 to 25. But first, let's uh, inquire of the Lord for his blessings. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious time together as thy people, opening thy scriptures, knowing that we have in our hands, the divinely preserved Word of God. And we trust that the Spirit of God will be pleased to illuminate our understanding of the text before us this morning, that he will reveal to us what the will of God is for each and every one of us this morning as we study this precious text. For we ask it all in his name and for his glory. Amen. The second chapter of Exodus begins with, And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. Now this is very significant. Whenever we are faced with descendancy in Scripture, we need to pay very careful attention to it. For God always includes for us relevant information. Information that will be used as evidence to vindicate or verify doctrinal truths that may be revealed hundreds or even thousands of years later. Here we are told that a man of the house of Levi married a daughter of Levi. If we skip a little forwards to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we learn that this man was Amram who married Jochebed, 
his aunt. Verse 20, And Amran took him, Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amran were a hundred and thirty and seven years. So if you look at the chart of Jacob's descendants, which was handed out last week, you will notice that Amran was the grandson of Levi, Jacob's third-born son, and that he married his father's sister. That would make her Amran's aunt. Now, we might also assume in this case that she, Jochebed, was much younger than Amran's father. Nevertheless, whatever the case may have been concerning their ages, it was an incestuous marriage, which was later forbidden by the law in Leviticus 18.12. However scandalous this marriage may have appeared, yet Moses nonetheless includes it in his history. For truth must never be hidden or withheld. Verse 2, And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. For three months, we are told that Jochebed hid Moses from Pharaoh's death sentence. You will recall that Pharaoh had decreed that all Hebrew males who were born were to be murdered or destroyed because he, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians also feared the Hebrews who by now had multiplied so rapidly that they filled the land. His fear was that if war ever broke out, the Hebrews might join up with the enemy and turn against the Egyptians. There, of course, was absolutely no basis for that fear. Also, we can deduce that this murderous decree had been issued sometime after Aaron's birth and just before Moses' birth. We can only imagine the fear and the anxiety that Jacobet and Amron must have experienced as they withheld their son from being exposed and murdered. For surely their lives too were at risk should they ever have been discovered. But it is precisely in such situations that God's mercy and grace is most evident. By God's grace, Moses' life had been preserved because God had chosen him long before he was ever conceived to be the deliverer of his people Israel. And so when it was no longer possible for his parents to conceal their son, Jochebed, by faith, made him an ark of bulrushes and sent him afloat in the flags of the river's brink. This, too, is very significant. For the river also had its own dangers. Crocodiles were very numerous in the rivers of Egypt. But faith 
is always able to navigate through the dangers of life with assurance that somehow the Almighty will provide and protect. And that he did. For we are told in the next few verses, verses 4 to 10, that the Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing in the river, discovered the ark and sent her maid to fetch it. She, of course, when she saw the baby Moses, had compassion upon him and realized that he belonged to the Hebrews. And then what happened next is nothing short of God's intervening grace. The sister of Moses, who was there all the time watching, sensed Pharaoh's daughter's compassion for Moses, her brother, and rushed to her asking, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? Please notice how wonderfully God's hand of mercy is intertwined in so many different lives. First, Jacobite's faith in putting Moses in the ark not only saved his life, but also put him under the protection of the Pharaoh's daughter. Secondly, by faith, Moses' sister, who may still have been in her preteens, asks the Pharaoh's daughter if she should call for her a Hebrew nurse. The Pharaoh's daughter, enamored by the infant's countenance, chooses to raise the child as her own son. But in the process, the Pharaoh's daughter is unaware that the nursemaid whom she hires is the child's very own mother, Jochebed. The Pharaoh's daughter then names him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Isn't it interesting that often God raises up friends for his people, even from among their enemies? The Pharaoh's daughter became officially Moses' mother and protector. Jochebed was nonetheless still his real mother and entrusted with his early rearing up. Biological mothers always make the best nurses and the ones who have their children's best interests in mind. Thus, we have summarized for us here in these first 10 verses the early life of young Moses. Though we are not told much about his education in Egypt, we can be certain that as a son of Pharaoh, he was privy privy to the very best that Egypt had to offer. We are told, however, later on in Acts 7, verse 20, that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Forty years in Egypt, learning to be great, learning to be a leader. But then in the next few verses, verses 11 to 15, we read about how Moses fell out of favor with the Egyptians and about his flight into the desert. For blood is always thicker than water, as the saying goes. And sometime during his upbringing, Moses came to learn of his lineage that he was of the Hebrews. And it seems that he already knew that he too was a Hebrew when he, in verse 11, 
went on to his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The Egyptian whom Moses slew may have been a taskmaster, dishing out some physical punishment upon one of the Hebrew slaves. Moses, seeing this cruelty, and when no one was looking, slew the Egyptian and then hid his body. It is unclear at the time how Moses slew this Egyptian, and even whether it was during the actual struggle or at some other time later. For the scripture says that Moses slew him when there was no man. Verse 12, to see him do it. Nevertheless, the next day when Moses again went among his brethren, another struggle took place again, this time between two Hebrews, which Moses attempted to quell peaceably, peacefully, reasoning with them, wherefore smitest thou thou thy fellow? It is always prudent to inquire of the cause of rebellion before attempting to put it down. But often there is no single cause for strife, but rather an accumulation of hurts, resulting finally in violence. And so it was at this stage or at this point that Moses realizes that his crime of killing the Egyptian a day before has been found out and that his life is now in danger too, verses 14 to 15. And he said, that is one of the Hebrew combatants, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. When a crime has been committed, serious consequences are sure to follow. And sometimes the offense is so grave, so serious, that restitution is impossible. It was such a situation for Moses, which left him no other option but to flee from Egypt, since the Pharaoh now too would seek his life. But God's plans can never be thwarted, for God, who is omniscient, is never caught by surprise. Yet sometimes they may be simply delayed because perfect timing is always the Almighty's trademark. So Moses, who for 40 years was groomed to be a prince and a leader, would now for the next 40 years be taught meekness and submission. He would first have to learn humility in order to be a vessel meet for the master's use. And so in the next portion of scripture, verses 16 to 25, we see a man brought down from a king's royal palace to a shepherd's lowly desert pasture. But the honorable qualities which a man possesses are never hindered nor quenched 
because of change of venue or circumstances, but rather they shine through more vividly in times of provocation and affliction than in times of ease and comfort. And so Moses finds himself now alone in the desert, having lost everything in the way of material comfort and possessions. He has lost his fame and privileged position as a son of Pharaoh and all the honor and rights associated with it. He has lost all whom he knew and certainly many whom he loved, all left behind, perhaps never to see them again. And yet, in spite of his circumstances, Moses shows no despair. The scriptures do not say a single thing about his grief or regret about his fall from the royal state. But rather, we are told in Hebrews eleven twenty six that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Sometimes God leads even when we are not aware that he is doing so. Sometimes there is something inside of us that gently beckons to go in such a direction or to do such and such a thing or to choose this path instead of that path. And we sense that it is the right choice but may not always understand why it is so until one day we see the fruits of that leading, do we realize the Lord's marvelous grace and provision? And so I believe that was the case with Moses here. He had not yet met the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His faith in God at this stage may have been but a weak glimmer, but it was enough to lead him there. And so we see Moses in the land of the priest of Midian, who we are told had seven daughters. They came to the well to water their father's flocks when they were chased away by some unscrupulous shepherds. But Moses, who was present and witnessed the wicked deed, stood up against these malicious shepherds and helped the daughters to water their flock. And because of this one act of kindness, Moses was brought into contact with their father, Father Reuel, and given a dwelling place. In verses 21 to 25, Moses, we are told, was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. You see how kindness is always rewarded. Though Moses was a stranger, an Egyptian by their first account, yet he was received into their family because he defended them at the well. And as time progressed, Moses became endeared to the prince of Midian, here known as Reuel, also known later on as Jethro. He gave his daughter Zipporah to wed, and in time she bare him a son, whom he named Gershom. This was all the providence of God. God found Moses a hiding place in time of his distress. 
But not only that, it became also a sanctuary to Moses for the time being, a little bit of heaven, so to speak. Yet it was also a life of hardship, looking after sheep. For it is most certain that Moses would not have been idle, as we learn in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1. In Egypt, Moses learned to be a scholar, a nobleman, a statesman, and a soldier, all accomplishments which would be later of great use to him someday. But here, in the desert, he would learn things that Egypt could never have taught him. He would learn by experience what it was like to live a life of solitary shepherds and the hardships of such a life in the desert, so to speak. It would also afford him the opportunity to commune with God, as we shall see in the next chapter, Lord willing. Verse 23. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by the reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Notice, please, that though God sees and knows everything that goes on, sometimes he has to patiently wait until his people start to cry out to him in their time of distress. We read in verse 23 that the children of Israel, who were by now under extremely severe bondage and slavery, began to think about God and cried out to him for help. God heard their groaning, and he saw their tears. Until a people acknowledges their need, and turns away from their wickedness and unbelief, and cries out to the only one true living God, there will never be any help. We read in Psalm fifty fifteen, And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. God wishes to help his people. He wishes to bless them, but it must always be on his terms and in his time. And the time was now right. Moses had fulfilled his training in the desert. He had fulfilled his time in Egypt. The old Pharaoh under whom Moses served had died. His enemies, too, were probably all dead by now as well. And so God was now stirring the hearts of his people Israel and preparing them for the next stage of his plan, as we shall see in our next message, Lord willing. That then brings us to a close to this chapter and our own message for this morning. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you, are you saved? Are you genuinely saved from your sins? If so, are you living for and serving the one who saved you, the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, if you have been procrastinating your decision to receive him as your savior, or you have been foolishly pretending to be one of his, but really just doing your own thing, 
Won't you please turn to him today while you still can and yield your life to the only one who can do something wonderful with it. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this story of young Moses and thy provision for him, thy grace and the mercy and loving kindness that we have seen exemplified through his life. We do look forward to the other chapters dealing with his life of serving thee and the greatness that he was able to aspire to because he yielded himself totally to thee. We pray, Lord, that thou would grant each of us a sincere desire to draw closer to thee each day, to learn more of thee and what thy will is for each of us, that we might spend more time in the reading of thy word, more time in the fellowship of the saints, and more time in serving thee each day of our lives. We pray thee now to part us with thy blessing and keep us from sin. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it all in his name and for his glory. Amen.